Hello, this is the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. In today's podcast, we discover how scientists are creating a super bean that resists harsh climatic conditions. It's hoped that this will improve food security in the face of future climatic changes. The predictions are, in fact, that we might actually be able to expand bean area into areas where beans have not traditionally been grown. For example, in eastern Kenya, uh, large parts of Tanzania. We discover how climate models are made and how a project is now enabling citizens to contribute to climate science from home. It automatically downloads it for you and you just press start and run it and once it's done it is automatically uploaded back to our system and because we have so many participants this allows us to have a very large ensemble of simulations. And as climate change brings new hazards for coastal areas, we talk to a scientist who suggests new methods to inform decision makers and better protect cities from future disasters. If you're actually managing risk, you're really more interested in what are the high-end, maybe low probability, but high-consequence changes. And we finally speak to Achim Steiner, Executive Director of the United Nations Environmental Programme, about the green economy and what we can expect from next December's climate negotiations in Paris. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. Beans have been an important source of protein in human diets for centuries, a cheap and nutritious replacement to meat, fish and other animal products. But scientists now fear that beans may be among the species that won't be able to adapt to a changing climate. So scientists from CGR, a global research partnership for food security, have come up with a special recipe to protect the so-called meat of the poor from being wiped out in tomorrow's hotter world. Reporter Anand Jagatia spoke to Steve Beeb of the CGR Bean Programme to learn more. He sent us this report. Here we're talking about the common bean. Uh, its scientific name is Phaseolus vulgaris. Uh, it's, the com- it's the bean that I think we're most familiar with. Uh, for example, these little white beans we call navy beans. Uh, you might be familiar with kidney beans. But it originated in the New World uh, in mid-altitude hills and mountains of uh, Mexico, Central America, South America. And therefore, it's particularly sensitive to high temperatures because it comes from a, a cool environment. And so that's where a a great deal of the danger comes. It's a species which uh, many populations are very dependent on for their diet, and yet it's very poorly adapted to to hot temperatures. So how important are beans as a source of nutrition for people living in certain countries around the world? Well, beans are certainly very important, especially in Latin America, Central America, Brazil, and especially in Eastern Africa and Southern Africa, where... It's uh, one of the primary sources of protein, as well as uh, a good source of carbohydrates. Uh, In East Africa, people will eat as much as 50 or 60 kilograms of beans per year, which makes it far and above one of the most important staples of, of the region. So what kind of impact could temperature rises have on bean crops in some of these regions? And, I mean, are we seeing some of these effects already? Uh, We're seeing some of these effects already, especially, again, in Central America, 
In Africa, the effects are not nearly so immediate, but they'll be just as disastrous in, in, the, in the immediate term. Uh, the potential danger, well, yes, uh, predictions for climate change are, are a bit dicey. The, the worst case scenario is about four degrees change uh, by mid-century. If that were to occur, and if we do nothing, we could lose 50% of our bean area uh, to, to rising temperatures. So losing 50% of the you know, potential land available for bean production is obviously going to be a massive uh, hit to some of these countries where, as you say, bean is a staple. Um, and so this is kind of where your new research comes in, and you've been able to breed some lines of beans which are able to um, grow in, in higher temperatures. So tell me a bit, a bit more about those. Almost every breeding work starts with a search for sources of, of important traits. Facing up to the challenges of climate change, uh, drought, high temperatures, perhaps excess rainfall. With beans, we typically go back to our, our gene bank. This is a collection of more than 40,000 uh, materials of uh, different sorts of beans collected all around the world. However, we did have on the shelf from some work done several years ago, crosses with an, uh, a sister species of common bean. It's called a tepary bean. Now, the tepary bean came from the deserts of southwest U.S. and Mexico, so naturally adapted to very warm temperatures. It's not easy to, to cross with the common bean, but some crosses were attained uh, a number of years ago. As we went back, put them into some very warm climates, uh, we found some surprisingly positive results, uh, materials which are producing very well with, as I say, three or four degrees higher temperatures than beans normally uh, have to face. Now we have the task of taking these forward, introducing the trait into cultivars that farmers are accustomed to growing. So if, if some of these beans, these heat-resistant beans, were introduced, um, Give us an idea of the kind of impacts that they could have. At the very least, we'll be able to protect the current bean area. And the predictions are, in fact, that we might actually be able to expand bean area into areas where beans have not traditionally been grown. For example, in eastern Kenya, uh, large parts of Tanzania, uh, down into the coastal areas of Central America. And these are areas which traditionally are uh, they're very marginal areas with very intense poverty. So we could eventually perhaps even fortify food security for some of these uh, populations living on really on the edge. What are some of the challenges which you face in producing these lines? The, the challenge of producing a bean variety is pretty much the same no matter what trait you're talking about. We could talk about heat tolerance, we could talk about drought tolerance, or disease resistance, but at the end of the day, the challenge is to produce a bean that farmers want and that consumers want. And well, this boils down to a lot of the visual traits, the grain size and the grain shape and the grain color, and eventually uh, other traits such as say, a short cooking time, uh, good flavor, and so uh, that, at the end of the day, is the big challenge, to come up with a product which a farmer and a consumer want and will accept. Once you've managed to produce a product, um, what are the next stages? How does that then get disseminated to the farmers that are at risk from the potential threats of climate change that we've discussed? Well, in, in the CGIAR, 
that's not our specialty. For that, we have partnerships with uh, government agencies, with non-governmental organizations, farmer groups, private sector around the world. In the specific case of Eastern Africa and in the case of beans, uh, one of the really novel uh, mechanisms that we've been working with the last few years, say to get new varieties into the hands of farmers, is marketing these, the seed of these new varieties through some very small packs, very small seed packs that small farmers uh, can afford to buy. You know, we have to realize a lot of these small farmers are women and they just maybe only have a few pennies of disposable income to invest in, in new technology. But they can buy one of these seed packs for as little as the cost of a cup of tea. And so th this has been uh, a great uh, innovation whereby they can uh, not adopt immediately, but they can test it on their own under their own conditions uh, with just a handful of seeds. And if they, if they like the new variety, they can go back and buy it again, or they can produce their own seed, you know, generation after generation. A new bean variety isn't going to transform lives, you know, but that's the only point of research is if we can get go the next step into development. That was Anand Jagatia speaking with Steve Beeb at CGR about the new breeds of heat-beating beans. Now, if scientists agree that climate change is real and it's already taking its toll on the planet's diversity, the big challenge for global climate research is to predict the future. We discovered how researchers are trying to protect essential crops against future droughts. But in different labs, they're also working to predict the likelihood of extreme weather events. Multimedia producer Lou Delbello is here to tell us more. Hello there, Lou. Hi, John. Hi. I wanted to discover how scientists are modelling the climate. And I know you might think, why you even bother? But I think it's important to understand how they make their predictions. So what mathematics they are using to state that climate change is real and make hypotheses on the future. And these are all things that will have a very, very tangible impact on our environment, on our cities and on our economies in the near future. So I visited the Environmental Change Institute at the University of Oxford, where I met Freddy Otto, the scientific coordinator of a project called climateprediction.net. So it's easy to guess what they do. But how they do it, that might be a surprise. But first, I asked Freddy to explain how a climate model works. There are all sorts of climate models, and climate models can be very simple. But the, the, uh, the climate models we run in our project are highly complex, dynamical climate models. That means um, the model solves on a grid over the, um, over the globe. So we have global models, um, and, and they have a grid over the, over the globe, and at each grid point and each grid point is about 100 kilometers apart. The model solves um, differential equations that calculate the precipitation, the pressure, and the temperature, and all the other climatic variables we are interested in at this grid point. Okay, Lou, so a climate model looks like a big grid, and the climate scientists investigate each grid point through a series of equations. Mm -hmm. But how do these equations work? Well, I discovered that in climate modelling there are two types of equations. And uh, here's Freddie explaining. 
the main equations that the model solves come from physical laws. So it's it's the conservation of energy equation, it's the conservation of mass equation, and it's the conservation of mo uh, momentum equation that are solved. So basic physics. But because we can't do that on on scales that are small enough, um, we need we need these parameterizations. So there are all sorts of other equations that are not based on physical laws, but on observations. So when building the model we need to go to the observations and find out just empirical relationships between the observed values that we can then build statistical equations from that the model is given as well. What Freddy calls parameterization refers to the information that comes from the ground observation. So even though the model is built to make predictions on a global scale, and that's a quite abstract idea, it still needs some data collected the old way by meteorological stations in the field. And then there are the so-called forcings. These are parameters that scientists change to see if a certain phenomenon, such as global warming, is influenced by a certain factor. For example? Imagine you wanted to know if CO2 really has an impact on global warming. In an experiment, you would normally have a control sample to check the difference between what happens given a certain intervention and what happens without. But we don't have two planet Earths, and we have to rely on models. So we can run a model without CO2, as if the Industrial Revolution had never happened, and another one with the increased CO2 in the atmosphere. So factors such as CO2 are called forcings, because they drive, or force, the climate system to change. Okay, Lou, so this is a well-established procedure for modelling climate, mm -hmm. but you first said that this team uses an unconventional method as well. What makes their project different then? Well, the scientists at Climate Predictions run climate modelling experiments with the help of thousands of citizen scientists. Like people collecting data in the field? Well, no, no need to leave your couch if you want to participate. The experiments are run on a simple home computer, or CPU. Here's Freddy explaining. So the model is built by the Met Office. To run it, you can just go to our website, and, and then you need to install a software on your computer, which ex tells you exactly how to do that, which is called Boink. The re reason why we use this specific model is that it can actually run on a single CPU one year of our models takes about a week or so to run on a single CPU. And that is, uh, and that is what, exactly what we ask you to do, to download it and then run one year for one, simulation, for one model simulation of, of our model. And because we have so many participants, we have, a, we have about 70,000 active participants. This allows us to have a very large ensemble of simulations. So the same model over and over again, but the initial conditions are slightly different. So we get all the possible weather under the given forcings. Within this huge dataset, scientists look for insights on the likelihood of extreme weather events. We will then look at the statistic of weather events, and in particular the statistic of extreme weather events, which, which are rare. So you, you need model simulations to work out how, ra how rare they actually are. Because in the observed records, if you're very lucky, you have observations that are 100 years. 
And if you're very, very lucky, it might be 200 years. But in most places of the world, observations go only back 30 or 50 years. So when you have an extreme weather event that you observe and you have maybe have two relatively similar events in the last 30 years, you have no idea to know whether this is really a two in 30 year event or whether it was just uh, by chance that you got two of these events in the last 30 years, but it was actually only a, a one in 200 year event or so. And this is why we need these large ensembles of climate simulations, so simulations of possible weather, because only in that way we can work out what are the real probabilities of the very extreme events. Well, now it's clear why crowdsourced data are useful to model climate, but how is this information used in real life? And how it really makes a difference? I put the question to Freddie. Um, so we we work cl- very closely with the Red Cross, Red Crescent Climate Centre, and um, they are often the first ones who are alerted when, when there is an extreme event emerging. And... So we get asked the questions, okay, there have been huge flooding in Mozambique over the last two weeks. Do we have to prepare for more of this, or was this a one-off event? On the one hand, for the event that is happening now, and for the people on the ground, the difference might be not that large or inexistent. But thinking about preparedness for the next event, it is important to know whether or not we can expect more of these type events, or actually less. At the moment, we don't know what the impacts of climate change actually are. We know the large-scale signal. We know that there is sea level rise, and we know that the temperatures have increased on a global scale. But what that actually means locally, we, to a very large degree, we don't know because we have just haven't done the studies. But with this method, we can do the studies, and we can find out what are the impacts of climate change, and then also work out how much did it cost us. And that has, especially in developing countries, an impact in where aid funding could come from. And it, will be, it might be particularly relevant with, uh, in the context of loss and damage. The loss and damage that Freddie mentions here is a scheme that was established in 2012 to compensate those countries where the impacts of climate change are so severe that it's impossible to adapt to them. And how does it work? Well, that's the problem. The idea is there, but no one has really managed to describe scientifically what these impacts are. And so the team at Climate Predictions hope that by assessing what type of events are due to climate change, or maybe just made worse by it, they will provide a useful starting point to make the mechanism finally work. All very interesting. Thanks very much, Lou, for coming in. Well, stay with us to learn more about how scientists are studying tomorrow's warmer world later in the podcast. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. Imagining a world where the climate is warmer, the weather more erratic, and trying to predict the changes this will bring is no easy task. But there are a few elements scientists can predict with certainty. For example, our sea levels will rise, and this will mean trouble for the coastal cities of the world. 
The IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has been trying to make predictions on how fast this may happen and how badly it's likely to affect coastal populations. But today, some argue that the IPCC's models, though good for analysing the situation on a global scale, aren't really the right tool to inform people who have to manage those changes in the field and be prepared for the most unlikely but potentially catastrophic events. Reporter Richard Kemeny has been learning more about this debate and sent us this interview. Humans have evolved to live on the land, yet we have a long-held affinity to the ocean. Natural resources, trade, cultural and socio-economic factors have all been driving forces towards habitation along the water's edge. Population density is greater by the shore and there is an ongoing global trend of migration to the coast. At the start of the century, 60% of those living in low-lying coastal areas were in developing countries. By 2060, this could reach 72%, counting over 1 billion people. But due to the impacts of climate change, humans might be forced to retreat back inland. The IPCC warns that the average global sea level could rise by up to a metre by 2100. This could spell disaster for many low-lying coastal areas. Yet it seems the predictions laid out in the IPCC's fifth assessment report may not be wary enough. Robert Nichols, Professor of Coastal Engineering at the University of Southampton, believes that the current models may not be giving coastal managers all the information they need. Well, I think the IPCC scenarios are very good in terms of defining the median range of what sea level rise might be. In other words, the kinds of values that are most likely to occur. But... If you're actually managing risk, you're really more interested in what are the high-end, maybe low probability, but high consequence changes. And they're not really describing those very well. And that's what really somebody who's thinking about risk management would like to know more about. More specifically, then, what are the models that the IPCC use? Well, they currently focus most of their attention on what they call process-based models. And these are models that use sort of, you know, basically physics-based models. And these really model things like thermal expansion of the ocean water. They model the, the uh, melting of ice sheets. So they're physics-based models. In essence, I'm not being critical of the process-based models. I'm emphasising that we need to be looking at, you know, in statistical terms, say the tails of the distribution. When we're talking about magnitudes of sea level rise that are a low probability but if they did occur, would have very high consequences. Rises of more than a metre in the coming century, which, which we think are possible, but unlikely. And really, the key thing we want to do is trying to define what is a sensible number to, to, to work through in terms of impact analysis and then adaptation analysis. What would we do if that rise in sea level was realised. So so it actually is more about the decisions that you make to deal with sea level rise. And if you if the amount of sea level rise means you would make different decisions, that's a you're in a, that's a very tough place to be. And I haven't got magic answers for that, but we're we're just trying to get people to recognise there's uncertainty and plan on the basis of um, that uncertainty, and I think in the end, having more robust strategies as a result. 
Right, okay. And do you think that poor countries might be more at risk from the effects of a global mean sea level rise than, than richer countries? Yes. I mean, without doubt, your vulnerability is linked very much to your economic development. So I think the wealthier you are, the more resources, uh, technology, etc., that you can um, you can bring to bear to the problem. So without doubt, the poor, I'm afraid, are always more vulnerable, be it climate change or any other kind of stress, I think. And how important do you think it is, you mentioned in the paper, that this, this information needs to be transformed onto a level for local coastal managers to to interpret uh, how how do you see that happening i think that's key i mean you know if you're adapting to sea level rise you're adapting to the local changes you're in, in fact you're not a, a local manager is not normally adapting to sea level rise they're adapting to all the risks that exist at that site and sea level will be one component of the risk maybe it might dominate it might, there may be many other factors that are important it will vary from place to place so it's very important when we think about adaptation that we think about the local situation um i think in the developing world this doesn't happen so much so maybe there is a question mark there about how downscaling might happen in developing um, countries and what if I were to say that, that planning for the worst or uh, indeed the, the impossible, as you mentioned in the paper, could incur extra costs that might be used elsewhere, in, for example, in research to slowing down the effects of climate change? When we're thinking about coastal areas, it's important to recognise that we need to have mitigation, I think, to make sea level manageable. But then we're going to still need to adapt to the residual sea level rise that essentially now we are committed to um, face. So adaptation in the coast will be a process. It's not like we can do one thing and the job's done. We need to keep on looking at the issues and adapting more. And this suggests the need for a plan. People talk about adaptation pathways, whereby you recognise that you will, over time, do more and more. And so therefore, you can build in flexibility so that you do Something today, you have a plan in place for what you'll do as sea levels rise into the future. If sea level rises fast, you'll have to do more. And if it rises less, you will do less. And that hopefully means, back to your point about resources, that you don't over or under adapt. So it's, it, it's trying to you know, match the solution to the scale of the problem. OK, so what recommendations would you give to the IPCC? I think my... Um, thought on how to take this forward really is this idea of a dialogue that I think I'm not sure there's a sort of a magic bullet lying around I think it's really to recognize that what the commentary is talking about is a real issue and it's also a very difficult problem and but if we can have this dialogue I think between what I would say the working group one scientists and the working group two scientists in IPCC about this we might be able to make some important improvements now I don't know what those are but I think that that there's a need to have that dialogue that was Richard Kemeny talking to Robert Nichols of the University of Southampton in the UK stay with us to hear more about efforts to make climate science heard in the global political agenda later in the podcast this is the scidev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development 
2015 is a crucial year for climate change response. In December, the international community will gather in Paris to sign a legally binding agreement on emissions reductions and draw up clearer regulations on adaptation to climate change impacts. As governments and the United Nations prepare for the 21st Conference of Parties, the spotlight is on those countries who will be most affected by climate change and who've contributed less to it. Dalia Abdel Salam, reporter at our Middle East and North Africa edition of our website, spoke to Achim Steiner, Executive Director of the United Nations Environment Programme, and asked him who's going to pay the climate change bill that will be particularly high in Africa. Well, who will pay this bill is a very good question because it is a amount of money that both for countries today and also for the international community is almost unprecedented. I think the true answer will be that there is both a need for international finance, but equally countries out of sheer self-interest will have to budget in their own national development budgets funding for this. How can the green climate funds help the adaptation? How can the developed countries fulfill their engagement towards the green climate fund, especially with global economic atmosphere? Well, I think in the last 12 months we have seen the first signals that the Green Climate Fund is no longer just uh, an idea. It is now established and uh, through the first pledges of $10 billion, let us be honest, the amount of funding that is currently available to the Green Climate Fund is by far not enough. But I think the outcome of Paris will be central to also the future of the Green Climate Fund. If there is a credible and also effective outcome from Paris that allows nations to move forward together in addressing climate change, then I think there is a good prospect that the Green Climate Fund will be also stocked with much more financing in the future. But there is as yet a great deal of uncertainty and I think we all need to acknowledge that there is no guarantee that these hundred billion dollars that have been envisaged by the year 2020 will in fact become available annually. In an ideal world, what the new agreement in Paris could look like? Well, that's um, the $10 billion question. I think in Paris, what we need uh, as a minimum is a commitment that all countries do recognize the importance of acting on climate change, that we are putting in place the mechanisms for cooperation and also financing, and above all that we send a clear signal into all the economic sectors in countries, whether the private sector, public sector, that factoring climate change into the future of our economies is inevitable. You mentioned the uh, technology transfer. I need to know from you shortly why this is always an issue and a sensitive uh, topic in, in all the conference of parties. Technology transfer can mean many things to many people, but at its simplest it is about enabling those who may not be able to afford it to have an opportunity to have access to this technology. And for a climate agreement that imposes very significant responsibilities for changing direction to succeed, um, we have to find a global approach to this, because there is no point in some countries moving towards low carbon economy and others simply continuing on the 20th century fossil fuel path. So, 
Clearly there are economic interests and there are also shared interests in finding a formula that allows everyone to have access to technology, state-of-the-art technology. The Green Economy Report on Africa, unit says power of investing in a greener economy significantly boosts GDP and life expectancy, yeah. create more and better jobs and rapidly reduce poverty gap in Africa. Would this be by stopping polluting industries, for example, and if we do this under this scenario, how this can create jobs? It's the opposite. Well, let us first of all accept that we can either ignore the science and say, well, global warming is something that is happening somewhere far away from us and, uh, you know, we have our economy, we have our industry, we have our infrastructure, and therefore we are just going to continue. If you take that position, then indeed the green economy is not something you will necessarily view as an opportunity. If you accept that we have to act on issues such as greenhouse gas emissions, but let us also get much closer to where people's lives are affected. Pollution every year kills, by the estimates of the World Health Organization, 7 million people prematurely. Is this really a price that we are justifiably paying in the name of development? If you are producing a polluting technology or polluting products and nobody asks you to change that, then you are very happy because you are making a lot of money. But the green economy will in the end succeed because that money is being made at the expense of the majority of society and of people and of people's well-being. That was Dahlia Abdel Salam talking to Achim Steiner, Executive Director of the United Nations Environment Programme. Well, that's all for this month. From me, John Eskam, and from the SciDev.net team here in London, stay connected with us for more news and views on global development. Until next time, bye-bye.